Welcome to the 3VB podcast series, 3VB Speaks. In this latest podcast, Hefin Rees QC and Cleon Katsambis will talk about a recent case they were instructed in on behalf of Sir Frederick Barclay and his daughter against other members of the Barclay family, following the discovery of a covert audio recording device at the Ritz Hotel in London, where Sir Frederick would hold business meetings relating to the Barclay business empire. These conversations captured highly confidential and commercially sensitive business information, as well as some meetings between Sir Frederick and his lawyers. The various court hearings that took place in London, in which both Heffin and Cleon acted for the claimants, along with Sophia Zvig of 3BB, attracted a significant amount of media interest. Heffin Rees QC has an impressive reputation in commercial dispute resolution, both in the UK and internationally. As a trial advocate, he has experience of long and complex high-value cases and is used to frequently leading teams of multiple lawyers. He is called to the bar in five jurisdictions and appears in high-profile cases in London, the BVI, Grand Cayman, Hong Kong and Singapore, as well as before the Courts of Appeal in England, Cayman, the BVI and before the Privy Council. Cleon Katsambis is a sought-after junior at 3BB with a specialist commercial practice. Cleon is regularly instructed in high-value commercial disputes with an international dimension and he has extensive experience of applications for interim relief. His recent cases include successfully acting for a custodian defendant in a $2 billion claim bought by the Danish tax authority and successfully bringing a bankruptcy petition where the underlying debt related to the financing and ownership of the financial city complex in Madrid, valued at £3 billion. Great to see you, Cleon. We're going to be talking in this podcast about the case we did together in Barclay and Barclay last year, which took about 12 hearings, I think, in front of Mr. Justice Warby, as he then was. Isn't that right? 12 hearings in about 21 days. <laughs> wow, yeah. And it was an interesting case because we used an unusual form of injunction order uh, known as a doorstep delivery up order, which is distinct and different from the normal full search order which many people will be very familiar with. And so in this podcast, we're going to discuss the principles behind the doorstep delivery up order uh, and compare and contrast it with the search order to see why it was that we chose the doorstep delivery up order form of injunction in the Barclay and Barclay case for the best outcome for the client. So Cleon, there were quite unusual facts uh, to our case, weren't there? Fascinating case. You know, it's hard, a very sad family tale, but it threw up really interesting and thorny questions of law and, and commercial transactions. And, of course, we had to grapple with all of that. So the scene is set at the Ritz Hotel in London. Sir Frederick Barclay was known to have many of his business meetings in the conservatory of his private uh, suite. And in January, it was discovered that a audio surveillance device had been covertly planted in that room. So what happened then? Well, during the course of an ordinary sweep of the room, it was uncovered that there had in fact been this bug in an otherwise ordinary looking plug in the wall. And uh, upon that discovery, a video surveillance device was installed in the room to capture who would come and collect the USB stick. And lo and behold, 
Lo and behold, it was a familiar face. <laughs> so this CCTV footage captured, as we were later to discover, Sir Frederick's nephew, who had been planting the bug and picking it up, and we could see him on the CCTV footage handling the bug. So in terms of advising uh, at this stage, we were thinking about either a full search order or what's known as a doorstep delivery up order. So can you just kind of summarize what's the difference and why really is a doorstep delivery up order a very different form of injunction? Yeah, absolutely. So a, a, a DDO is sometimes described as a close cousin to a search order. It's, it's still a mandatory injunction requiring a party to immediately hand over to the supervising solicitor the material that's identified in the order. But unlike a search order, the party is not entitled to enter the premises without the respondent's permission, hence the name. Hence so, the name, doorstep. That, that's right. So you don't get to rummage through the proverbial sock drawer, yeah. but you still get to walk away with the material that's delivered up. And it's, um, it's a form of order that originated primarily in the employment law context, you know, disgruntled former employees walking away with customer lists and so on. But there, there's no reason in principle why it can't be applied to the broader commercial factual matrix. So that's interesting. You say about the employment law context. There was a case in 2018 by the name of Hyperama and Poulis, Mr. Justice Pepperell, his decision there. And he trawled through all of the case law on this and went back really to the 70s, where uh, particularly we had the case of Locke International and Bezik, Hoffman, as he then was, Hoffman J., where he set out the principles there in an employment law context. So how has the law developed since the 70s to get to Hyperama in 2018? Hyperama is the starting point for anyone making an application of this nature. It was a decision of Mr. Justice Pepperell, who comprehensively reviewed the authorities dating back to the 70s, uh, primarily in the employment law context, and drew out what the key test one had to satisfy to get a DDO. And that involved establishing a high degree of assurance that the applicant would be able to establish his claims at trial. You had to establish that the damage, potential actual, to the business interest was very serious. There had to be clear evidence that the defendant had incriminating documents in their possession. There had to be a real possibility that defendants might destroy such material before any inter-parties hearing could take place. And the relief sought had to be proportionate to the legitimate aims. So Mr. Justice Pepperell really set out a framework that one could adopt to a much broader commercial context than just employment law. Hmm. I think with the background of DDOs, as you've described, they are largely based on cases where, for example, an employer is concerned that specific items have been taken from the office, for example, a list of customers, uh, confidential information and the likes. And so in that context, people specifically know what's been taken. Mm -hmm. Whereas in a search order, it's wider than that, isn't it? Because you don't quite know what the other side have got. Whereas in the context of a DDO, very often you have a specific list of items you're trying to recover. And that's what we had in this case, isn't it? Well, the real difficulty we had in this case is we, we didn't know what the other side had. We didn't know for how long they'd been recording. We didn't know what conversations they may have captured. We certainly didn't know what third-party information they may have captured. And so we have to satisfy a court that there will have been confidential information 
um, captured without knowing precisely what it was. And the way we uh, achieved that was by way of a confidential schedule hmm. to the affidavit in support of the application. And that was largely speculative in that we were asking the applicants to try to remember conversations they would have had months back. But it gave a flavor of the types of conversations we expected to have been captured and why, in all the circumstances, the DDO was appropriate. But, but you're absolutely right. This wasn't the case where we knew they had downloaded a specified number of files from a computer and we wanted those back. It was much more unknown than that. Yes. And so it was that rather strange situation where uh, one had to imagine what was being said over a course of two or three months and trying to rack your brain as to what might have been contained within that confidential information, which was then put in that schedule, as you say, attached to the, to the order. And of course, you don't want to volunteer too much. No, that's right. So what do you think are the benefits, really, of a DDO over a search order? I think there are cases where uh, you are unlikely to obtain a search order. Hmm. Parties are often quite uh, bullish, sometimes on legal advice. We got very clear indications in the judgment that this is a case where we would not have obtained a search order. And in fact, um, Mr. Justice Friedman said he was only narrowly persuaded to grant the DDO, which in the event turned out to be entirely justified. But had we gone purely for a search order, the court would not of its own volition have said, well, I won't give you that, but how about a DDO? Mm. And so it's important, I think, to advise clients realistically about the interim relief they may be able to obtain. And I think we got a degree of credibility with the court by specifically asking for a DDO and not a search order. And uh, as it turned out, we obtained everything we would have done had we had a search order. So the efficacy wasn't undermined because of that decision. Mm. Because in our case, obviously, we knew that uh, there was this bug, this device that had been used for COVID recording. Uh, and that was really the main thing we were looking to recover. But in terms of connected items, in terms of the provision of information, the order the court made also enabled certain questions to be asked of the defendant when the order was executed. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely. And, and as in any um, form of interim relief, it's really important to get the drafting right. Mm. And so we gave very careful consideration to what we should seek by way of listed items and what we should seek by way of provision of information. Because you only really get one shot at this. And so we, we wanted to make sure that we had clearly defined items or categories of items, but of course made it as expansive as possible. So in our draft order, we, we identified in, in the schedule, um, not just, as you say, uh, any recordings, but also, for example, copies or notes of those recordings, any communications relating to those recordings, transcripts, documents pertaining to the making of them, and any other uh, listening or recording equipment. And uh, in terms of the questions posed, that was particularly important in this case, because at the outset, we only really knew about the first defendant. Yes. And uh, we posed a series of questions which then directly implicated other parties. Yes, because one of the questions was, who have you shared this information with? And then the first defendant um, responded by saying he'd shared it with 
the second, third, fourth, and fifth defendants, which we hadn't realised at the time, of course. Uh, but that was an incredibly important piece of the order that we got. Absolutely, and, and cue frantic drafting for further applications in DDOs against these two to five. That's right. Because there are obviously differences between a search order and a DDO, as we described. But one of the things which the judge wanted to maintain in the DDO was also the role of a supervising solicitor, which, of course, is quite an expensive feature of any case. Perhaps we just talk a little bit about that in terms of the role of the supervising solicitor within the DDO in our case. Well, the supervising solicitors perform a a very important function for both the claimant and the defendant because they ensure that the DDO is properly implemented. So they're there to provide safeguards to the defendant and explain the process, but they also produce, for example, a report after the execution of the DDO upon which the claimant would rely at any subsequent hearing or trial. So, as you say, it's a expensive process, but it gives that degree of impartiality and ensuring that everything is done properly to a court's satisfaction. But it's important there to to have someone who's got experience. They know what they're doing. They're available at short notice, and they take a pragmatic approach to the execution. Yeah, I mean, we also had a computer specialist uh, as part of the the team in executing the doorstep delivery up order to take a forensic image of some of the documents in terms of the electronic documents. That meant that the actual search party was quite extended in terms of the numbers and it becomes quite an issue, doesn't it, if you can't actually serve the order at a specified time (laughs) because then you have to have obviously different search parties, you know, in in each eight hour or 12 hour period. So that's something which the judge was mindful of as well in terms of the limiting the search party number. And, and it, again, it's important to define the search party properly and with sufficient flexibility in the order because coordinating all those people is not going to be easy. Uh, on the facts of this case, I think we had three or four attempted executions before we actually got let in. And it's, uh, it's called a doorstep delivery up order. Of course, if, as you say, five, six, ten people show up at your doorstep and neighbours start drawing open the curtains and uh, traffic starts slowing down, well, you're very likely to invite them in. So it ends up being a, an entrance hall, if you're lucky, a, a reception room delivery up order. <laughs> as you say, it involves lots of professionals. Of course, the defendants are likely to notify their own solicitors as well. Yes, yeah, so in that context, when the order is served on the doorstep... Obviously, there's time provided for the defendant to contact his or her solicitor and time provided within the order for them to attend and to give advice. And so there's not like an immediate uh, service of this of this order in the form of requiring to answer the questions, because there is some time provided for the defendant to get legal advice, of course. It's also an interesting feature of the case that we had great difficulty in serving the order in the first place. Mm. And so after three or four failed attempts at serving it on D1, we had to go back to court to get a an order for alternative service. And interestingly, we got one by WhatsApp, which I think might be it might be only the second reported case where that's been done. I think that's right, yes. I think it's the second one. And so Mr Justice Friedman gave us the alternative service order, whereby as long as the documents could be seen to have been received on WhatsApp, that was deemed good service. Even if not read. So even, even if you didn't not- get those two blue ticks, you were served. <laughs> 
So that meant that uh, we did eventually get all of the orders served. We, we also had a gagging order provision for uh, each of the DDOs. Why was that important, do you think? Well, in situations where there's a real risk of tipping off, mm. the only way to make sure that these orders are effective and actually um, successful in preserving the material you're trying to obtain is to make sure that other people don't know about it. And so we actually employed a whole suite of procedural safeguards here to ensure that there wasn't tipping off. And that, that included sitting in private, uh, anonymizing the parties, sealing the court order, as you say, a, a gagging order, I think interim non-disclosure, uh, I think uh, is order is what they like it to be called, uh, prohibition on reporting. And all of that was in place to ensure that, for example, D1 didn't have an opportunity to inform the other parties about what had happened. So I think a DDO is a valuable tool in any litigator's armory, really. Obviously, it's not a complete replacement to the full-blown search order, and those will have utility in certain forms of cases, particularly cases involving fraud. But in cases where there isn't that allegation of fraud that can be made, in cases where, I suppose, you've got specific information that, they can, that the defendant has items which you need back, confidential information which you need him to uh, deliver back to you, it's a very useful form of injunction. Absolutely. Why do you think it is that it's not used more regularly? Well, to be honest, I don't think it's very well known. I think, to be frank, Mr. Justice Pepperell in 2018, in that judgment of hyper-armour, did us all a massive favour. <laughs> I think new life into it. I think he did. I think we'd all forgotten about it. Because if you look back at Hoffman Jay's judgment in Locke back in 1989, which is almost 30 years ago, I think we'd all forgotten about this provision for a doorstep delivery up order. And so I think Mr. Justice Pepperell's to be congratulated because he has gone through very carefully all the jurisprudence in this area going back 40 plus years. And I think he's breathed new life into it. I'm not sure if I hadn't read the Hyperarmor case, I would have remembered those cases back in the 70s and 80s. And so um, I think, yeah, I think it's a very interesting new twist to this area and i think more people should know about a doorstep delivery up order because i think it's a very valuable thing to to know about i I think you might be performing a similar service here (laughs) because the the truth is that there just haven't been many more reported cases since ours on the use of a ddo so I, i agree completely i think it's a very useful tool to have in one's arsenal and one should at least consider it alongside other options You can find out more about recent cases in which members of 3VB have been involved and further information on all our areas of practice by visiting our website www.3vb.com or via our LinkedIn page and Twitter feed at 3VB Chambers.